Hey there, podcast listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. This is Art Wright, and I'm here at Williamsburg Baptist Church in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. I'm so excited that you've chosen to listen to this podcast in particular. We had a wonderful guest preacher for this first Sunday in the Epiphany season. Uh, we welcomed on January 8th the Reverend Dr. Megan Fullerton Strollo to preach for us. Megan is Assistant Professor of Biblical Languages at Union Presbyterian Seminary. We overlapped in our PhD program while there, and um, she and her husband and their two kids are members at Fredericksburg Baptist, and um, Megan also accompanied us on the Holy Land trip that several of us from Williamsburg Baptist went on back in May of 2022, and so we were delighted to welcome her and her family to our congregation yesterday. Megan preached on Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 through 17, which is the baptism of Jesus. Her sermon is entitled, Water Has Memory, and was so meaningful for us as we moved through a time of worship in which we remembered our own baptisms and the ways in which um, our own experiences of being people who are baptized or hold baptism as a value as people of faith calls us to a new way of being in the world, one that's shaped and guided by who God is calling us to be and to show up as in the world. And so we were so grateful for Megan and helping to shape our um, reflection and conversation and perspectives yesterday on a very meaningful time in worship together. I want to add, just um, because I think that it's wholly relevant, that Megan has a new book out, uh, and uh, it's as my understanding is that it's hot off the presses. So if you want to check it out, it's Theologies of Human Agency, Counterbalancing Divine Inactivity in the Megalote by Lexington Books. It's a little bit pricey. It's um, <laughs> it, Lexington is one of those book publishers that puts out pricey books. And so we'll see if we can get a copy of it at the church if you want to check it out. But uh, we're so grateful. You may also remember um, Megan's voice. We did a podcast on the book of Ruth last summer uh, when we were leading up into a um, uh, sermon series on the book of Ruth, and Megan led us so well in that. So I hope that this sermon is meaningful to you. If you want to find out more about what we've got going on these days, you can head over to williamsburgbaptist.com or check us out on Facebook or Instagram. As always, you can feel free to reach out to me at pastor at williamsburgbaptist.com if you want to connect, share prayer concerns, or just just give feedback. Again, so glad you're listening. We really do count you as um, one of us, and um, we're really glad you're here. God bless. Thanks for such a pleasant entrance. (laughs) Uh, I am grateful that you all uh, are here today. I am grateful especially that I was invited to come. Uh, My parents have been attending here for a few months now on and off. They're pretty busy. They travel quite a bit to see all of their lovely grandchildren, uh, and I am grateful for that. Uh, But thank you for making space for them and for welcoming them in as well. Art didn't mention in his introduction, and perhaps it was wise of him not to do so, uh, because it bears upon my sermon today. Uh, Art and I met in the summer of 2009 
Uh, I was just beginning my seminary career, and I stepped into my very first class. It was the summer language intensive course, and would you believe it, but Art Wright was my professor. So, anything I have to say today that bears upon the Greek language, bet be known that it was Art who taught me that language, so just know that if you have any problems, you can see him about it. No, I am, I am grateful for that time. Uh, it inspired in with, within me a dear love of the languages, obviously. But more than that, I am grateful to be here to share a word on this baptism epiphany day. Epiphany is not only a moment, it's a season. And in each week, as you all celebrate and discuss and learn deeply about epiphany, a new aspect, a new light of who Jesus was is illuminated. And that's what we see here today in this passage. I have always loved water. As kids, my siblings and I spent our days at the pool. We were always on swim teams, and in fact, I only stopped swimming competitively when the prospect of a little extra sleep outweighed the 5 a.m. swim practice. But we swam for fun in the neighborhood, and the moment I was old enough to go for the swim test so that I could go to the neighborhood pool on my own, I went for it. I can remember long days spent in the pool with friends, interrupted only by the whistle for adult swim. And as a kid, that was the longest 15 minutes of my life. We lived near enough the ocean that I remember many beach visits, boogie boarding, jumping the waves, So much so that you get the feeling at the end of the day when you're lying in bed and you still feel like you're in the ocean. Nowadays, I still love the water. And in all those fun ways and more. As an adult, the sound of water has a calming effect for me. I'm always drawn to creeks and streams when hiking, always seeking out the best waterfalls. Going to the beach now, I often make time as soon as I arrive and before leaving, to simply stand at the edge of the sea, to feel my feet sinking into the sand, and to listen, just listen, to the waves crashing, lulling me into a place of peace. Nowadays, when we swim in the pool, I love to simply float. My grandfather taught me the best way to float. And there's such calm when you leave the joyous screaming and splashing that's happening around you. Lay back in the water and let the sounds dissipate into a murmur. Now I know that many do not have, for many reasons, the same love for water that I do. For some, being in the water is a place of anxiety. And I acknowledge that and hold space for that. Believe me. But more than just a place for swimming, vital water is vital for life. Of course, we know, many of us, that humans are made up entirely almost nearly 80% of water. Our life begins in the water, in our mother's wombs. Water sustains us. The waters of our planet are ancient. God's presence over the waters at creation continue, even into our story today. But I personally do have fond memories of being in the water, 
This past summer, my daughter Faye took part in swimming camp to bolster her own skills at swimming. My second daughter Nellie is as just as much a fish as her big sister. And recently, I noticed something remarkable when I got in the water. My body remembered the water too. And what I mean is that the strokes that I learned as a kid, the methods of treading water, they come naturally the moment I'm in the water now. Now you might say, and you would be right, that that's how memory and learning works. Much like riding a bicycle, muscle memory takes over. Your body simply knows what to do. Indeed. But it is still remarkable to notice it, to pay attention to the way your body remembers. Your heart, your whole being remembers the water. And then I heard something that really got me thinking. I've already mentioned my two daughters. They are seven and two and a half. And the younger is currently in her generation's frozen phase of life, referring to the Disney movie where two sisters and their beloved little friends, during a recent rewatch of Frozen 2, there are many of them, I was struck anew by something Olaf, their magical snowman and best friend, said. In a humorous rundown of all the facts that he knows now because he's older and knows everything, he said, did you know that water has memory? And when pressed to explain, he continues, water has memory. The water that makes up you and me has passed through at least four humans and or animals before us and remembers everything. Now, yes, of course, it is meant to provide a bit of humor. Water has memory. Now, of course, I had to look into this. Obviously, Olaf didn't just make it up. The theory is a valid one. The theory that water has memory stems from scientific studies done in the 80s and 90s, where a solution of human antibodies was diluted to such a degree that there was virtually no trace of the solution. And yet, the study claims that white blood cells responded as if the solution had been left undiluted. The claim is that the water has a memory of being that undiluted solution. On a scientific level, the theory that water itself has memory has, since the 80s, been largely dismissed. So... Since water is not a conscious entity, this, of course, makes some sense. But still, the question has lingered for me. This notion of water having memory. As I've approached this story of baptism in Matthew's gospel today, I'm struck even more by this idea. Water, not as capable of having memory in and of itself, but maybe in the ways that water can hold memories, a carrier of remembrance. Theologically, this was intriguing. As I reread the Gospel of Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism, I noticed that the writer was playing on memory, playing on traditions and truths of the past, 
playing on convictions for the present and even on implications for the future. Indeed, even scientists do concede that water can provide clues about the past. It holds memory in a way, such as we know where water has been, we can tell what's been in it, and we may even be able to know where water is going. So, as we approach this story this morning, may we look into this story of water to remember and to be guided. Elements of Jesus' baptism are recorded in all four of the Gospels. Not quite as detailed as we see in Matthew, but each of the four makes a point to note this baptism and some of its aspects. In fact, it's only one of three episodes in Jesus' life to appear in all four of the Gospels. You have the feeding of the thousands, the multitudes, the story of Jesus' passion, the arrest, death, and resurrection, and the story of Jesus' baptism. From that, we can deduce that this moment in Jesus' life was significant, not only for Jesus himself, but more importantly, for the disciples, for the church as a whole. So what is it about this story? In order to understand it a bit more, we need to look at the beginning part, just before Jesus gets in the water. We get some context about who John is and what he's doing and saying out there in the wilderness. He's John the Baptist, the baptizer. Who was he and what did baptism mean? In the ancient world, the necessity of ritual purification was well established. Washings, one hands, or in some cases, fully immersing in water was required for entrance into the temple or synagogue for participation in the community. By Jesus' time, Jewish ritual baths called mikveh or mikvot for plural were common in communities. Generally, such cleansing was perfunctory not necessarily the result of moral or ethical wrongdoing. These were just things we had to do to stay clean in order to go into the sanctuary. Lots of things could make us unclean, including dirt. However, there were cases when wrongdoing, whether it be unintentional or not, required a physical response through cleansing. John's baptizing in the Jordan required a reckoning with yourself and with the community, an acknowledgement of imperfection, an acknowledgement that sometimes we act in ways that harm. Coming to the Jordan was then an intentional act and a public one. John's message of repentance required intentional action on the other side as well. You see, repentance was not just a change of mind or heart. It was a literal turning. It wasn't merely acknowledging that I did something wrong in the past, but a commitment to writing it on the other side, to making a change about the way we act. More broadly, when we hear John's message, it rings with memories of earlier prophets, prophets who spoke boldly against ruthless power brokers, dangerous empires, kings, Caesars, spoke out for the marginalized and the silenced, and spoke with fervor about God's desire for justice, peace, and love. 
Matthew's gospel, in taking us through that portion, connects John with those early prophets. John is perceived explicitly as the one of whom Isaiah spoke, the one who prepares the way. Indeed, John's own speech, his call for repentance, pronouncement of judgment, and the announcement of the one to come mirrors much that we see in the prophetic tradition. John is more than a mere forerunner to Jesus. John has an essential part to play in the story of God, not just in Jesus' story. The memories of the water, ritual purification, and the power of the prophetic voice come to bear when Jesus steps in to the water. Jesus comes to the baptismal waters purposefully, Indeed, up to this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been a relatively passive figure. Things have happened around him. We've talked about him. His family has had to go through some things. The Magi came to see him. Here in chapter 3, Jesus acts and speaks for the very first time on his own. Jesus steps into the waters of the Jordan bringing along memories of ages-old traditions and adding his own into the swirl of water. When Jesus steps into the waters, then, we have a clue of what has come before, of where this water has been. The memories held within the water come to bear. The gospel writer now invites us to stand in the moment, in the present, with Jesus and John in making that memory. You see, when we read the gospel, we read it as if it's a story that's already happened. And from the perspective of the writer, Jesus' baptism probably happened decades before. So it is, in a way, recounting a story that's already occurred. But Greek has a really cool way of bringing us in. You see, Greek tense doesn't need to tell a story in terms of time. This may have already happened, but the writer tells it in the present tense. While our translations usually say, then Jesus came, really the Greek says something like, then Jesus approaches, he comes. In an instant, we are drawn into the story. What was happening at a distance is now honed in, and we are right there with it. We participate in this moment with John and Jesus. We get to make our own memories in this water. That the early church struggled with the notion that Jesus was baptized by John, by anyone, particularly one calling for confession of sin and repentance, is clear in Jesus' and John's conversation. What's more, many of us might wonder why it was that Jesus felt the need to be baptized at all. Although Jesus' sinlessness is not explicitly discussed in Matthew, we know from earlier letters of Paul that this was a common understanding. So when John says, why? Why should I baptize you? I need to be baptized by you. In true Jesus fashion, Jesus doesn't really answer the question, not directly. He doesn't typically do that very often, does he? Typical of his behavior elsewhere, Jesus is less focused 
on what we've done in the past. He doesn't disregard it completely, but he's more concerned with how we act now and into the future. So Jesus says, and this is my paraphrasing, give up on your reluctance. Our doing this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. What is Jesus talking about? Well, here again, we see the gospel writer tapping into memory. Matthew uses the term fulfill or fulfillment a lot, far more than any of the other gospels. Matthew is particularly focused on placing Jesus into the larger story of God's saving history. Matthew constantly draws upon memory, using the stories of the Hebrew scriptures, the hopes expressed in the prophets, fits Jesus into that long narrative. The concept of righteousness in Matthew also draws upon earlier traditions. Righteousness is not limited to moral uprightness, not what I think I know is right. It's about obedience to God's law, seeking God's righteousness. And God's righteousness is expressed in covenant faithfulness and those saving acts of deliverance. Put differently, God desires that humanity follow God's actions of justice, mercy, love, kindness. Righteousness is not something I think I know. It requires relationship. Righteousness is something you do. In a recent commentary, Diane Chen makes this connection well. She says those who come to John for baptism, confessing their sins and repenting, were taking the first step toward restoring their relationship with God. Jesus, whether he needed repentance or not, stood in solidarity with all humans, showing us that right relationship with God was possible, showing us how to make that first step. By being baptized by John, he places himself alongside those earlier prophets who call for renewal and faithfulness to God. Jesus enters the water of baptism to show us what's possible with God, to show us the way forward in justice, mercy, and in love. But it's not just about stepping into the water. What happens next is amazing, a memory maker to be sure. Each of the four Gospels records this moment, and Matthew, again, brilliantly playing on memory, on the past, the present, the future, in ways that we miss often when we're reading it at first glance. You see, again, Greek is going to use its power of verb. Right? More than just a time stamp. No more, more than just to say when something happened. Just as we've already seen, the Greek language pulls us in, sparks our memories, points us towards what is yet to be. It can even mix and match. And that's what we see here. After Jesus was baptized, the writer tells us that the heavens were opened in a matter-of-fact, one-time event way. They were opened. But we are drawn into the story first. The Greek word here is idu. And it's often missed, often left untranslated. It wasn't translated in your passage that we read here today. But it means behold. It's an attention grabber. 
And it's not for the people in the story. It's for you. They don't need to be told, hey, look, they can see that something amazing is happening. It's Greek's way of saying, perhaps if you were dozing off, wake up. Check this out. Look what's about to happen. The heavens were opened. It's a message for us. The writer breaks the fourth wall to use TV lingo. Sends a message out for us, the reader, to pay attention. Look, look. The heavens were opened and the spirit of God descended and rested like a dove on him. Both the resting of the spirit and the divine announcement hearken back once more to memories ages old. Memories of David, the king, the servant of God described in Isaiah like the spirit hovering at creation, like the dove in Noah's story that comes to rest and mark the end of the flood. She, the spirit, comes to rest here, marking for all present and for all of us reading and listening now, hey, look, Jesus is the next big part of this story. Memories of other waters, memories of God's presence and God's rescue linger here in this story. In all the other Gospels, the divine message seems to have been heard by Jesus. The writers there say, you are my son. Matthew opens it for all of us. This is my beloved It's more than an affirmation for Jesus. It's an affirmation and a pronouncement for us all. You see, God's complete delight, happiness, pleased outlook for Jesus brings to mind again others, David, again, the psalmists and the prophets. But the message is for all time. The gospel writer once again switches those tenses on us telling us that the message continues to ring out. This isn't, this was my son. I was pleased in this moment. God, the Spirit, says, this is and will always be my beloved child. I am completely and for all times delighted. Throughout the telling of Jesus' baptism, Matthew's writer has deftly drawn us all in through memory and through, I would say, quite a clever use of grammar. I love that. Jesus stepped into the water to show us what was possible, to start a lifelong journey of ministry and service. As Jesus steps out of the water, Jesus steps in to full-time ministry A life lived in ways that fulfill God's delight, God's desire for justice and mercy, love and faithfulness. Through the rest of his life, Jesus will continue to demonstrate for us this way, all the while carrying those memories of water with him. As we tell and retell the story of Jesus' baptism, these memories become our own. As we step in and out of these waters, whether we do so literally or figuratively. 
Whether we fully immerse or just remember with a drop, we remember the call of the prophets, God's affirmations. This is my beloved, my daughter, my son, my sibling, my child. In you, I forever and for all times am delighted. We remember our decisions, our own desires to love and to serve. And like Jesus, we acknowledge that we too are called, affirmed to live in ways that fulfill God's delight. Jesus was keen to say that fulfilling righteousness was a task set for both himself and for John. They were both necessary to fulfill that righteousness. The Messiah and the everyday individual. As I said at the start, Olaf the snowman may not have been scientifically correct about water having memory, but he wasn't entirely wrong either. Perhaps water can hold memory. Like a running stream stepping in, we have a clue about where it's been, what's been in it, and where it's going. Water holds the ripples of impact. It can be impacted by our own actions as well. The waters of baptism carry the memories of prophets' calls, Jesus' choices, Jesus' actions, and God's delighted affirmations. Whether we actually remember our own baptisms or not, the waters of baptism hold our memories. They hold those calls the love, the affirmations. So may the memories we make now of those baptisms, of baptism, may our own memories now be added to the water. May our participation in memory-making strengthen those waters. The memories show us the way. So may we step in. May we too hear, here is my beloved child. In you, I take great delight. And may the memory of waters carry us ever forward, seeking justice, love, mercy, God's righteousness. <laughs>